Hi, welcome. This is Dr. John Martini. This is one of the most amazing and inspiring shows that you can listen into. If you want to be on the edge of your seats, if you want to open up your heart, if you want to expand your mind, and you want to meet incredible people, stay tuned because you're just about to experience a transformative radio show that will change your life. And you're listening to the Dr. Pat Show that's coming up right next. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me, busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. Hey, everybody. Welcome to our good news segment. Look, recently you've heard me talk about some of the research that, you know, I engaged when I went back to school. I looked at things that I didn't quite understand, but I knew one thing for sure. I knew we weren't keeping our promises to each other. I knew organizations weren't keeping their promises. And what happens when we enter the world and we find that integrity is crumbling? What happens? What happens? Well, I'll tell you what happens. You get a book called The Noble Edge, Reclaiming an Ethical World, One Choice at a Time by Dr. Christopher Gilbert. And when you get a book like this and you look at what it means to bring the pieces back to the forefront, then you truly step into a level of truth that is free. Dr. Dr. Gilbert, thank you for joining me here today. Thank you for writing this book. Oh, it's a privilege to uh, be able to chat with you. Thank you so much. Um, there's always there's always a story behind the story. I know that's true for myself and the many people that I've interviewed. And I want to ask you this. Something touched your heart. Something opened you up. Something said, I need to really step forward in voice about this particular topic. Tell me what that was. Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head. I think it probably took uh, me 25 years of, of kicking and dragging and screaming myself to the point where I could bring this book together. Uh, but it was really my experience in starting an entrepreneurial business uh, back in the mid-80s that was about food delivery. Um, we were doing a revolutionary new way of doing this so we could offer people a healthy menu. Um, the only people that we could uh, look for venture capital because the Black Monday had occurred back then and no was investing was to look at large partners. Uh, we got uh, essentially two large food companies in the U.S. to come in and take a look at us. One of them came in. Uh, they left about four weeks later and said, no, we're not going to do this business. Uh, and then we learned about two months later that they had opened an identical business uh, out in Eden Prairie, Minnesota. Mm. And uh, that basically squelched our chances to take our business anywhere. And so through that illegal activity, we had to lay 35 good people off, close the business. And then I started scratching my head about what do I do now? Mm. Boy, I'll tell you, that is a story that could certainly fit into my pocket um, of things that happen. And, you know, as you write about in the book, what I find is there are more and more and more people that are having experiences, you know, Dr. Chris, just like you. And, you know, it leads us to take a different action. It leads us to really step back and say, ethics principles number 11, with paradigms, a truer truth always wins. I mean, that's it. It's in the book. At the ethics principles number 11 with paradigms a truer truth always wins. You know, 
let's talk about that for a minute, because I believe that what you've written in the book is at the cornerstone of something I think is extremely important, and we'll talk about today, and that is our relationship with trust. Um, let's talk about the book and the way you've laid this out. You know, you're giving us ethic, ethic principles and you're laying them out. And, and you're not just giving them, you're not just, you know, spewing, this is the principle. You're talking about what that means, right? You're talking about personalizing things. Ethics are best understood when they are personalized. Talk to me about how these insights came to you and why they are really game changers, uh, Dr. Gilbert, for the world we're living in today, today's world. Yeah, great. That's absolutely right. And haven't we been through, at least over the last half decade, some pretty interesting uh, question marks about morality and ethics and trust. Um, But you you really hit the nail on the head. Yeah, that's right. I think you really hit the nail on the head in terms of, again, this is a... This is an experience uh, that I had mainly with my students, a university professor teaching the uh, ethics and social responsibility courses at a couple of universities globally. And I noticed in my students that as we were doing these uh, case studies, which is just looking at the activity of businesses that have been caught and leaders that have been caught at doing things wrong, um, my students were having what I came to call, and I also saw this in corporate boardrooms, the folks that were participating in my work, uh, basically we're having what I've come to call an ethics out-of-body experience. That's right. And that is, we would uh, basically look at others with a different set of eyes that we were looking at ourselves. For my students, it was this idea that as we looked at people that were making awful decisions that cost millions and thousands of jobs, they would say, well, well, I would never do that. I certainly would never be in a position to make that kind of a decision, all while we're downloading illegal software, cutting people off on the freeway, fudging on our taxes, uh, fudging on relationships. And I realized there was a real disconnect. That's the out-of-body experience between the way they were looking at others and the way that they were looking at at themselves or the way that we look at ourselves. So I realized the conversation wasn't right. We needed to do something about the conversation so that we could bridge that gap between the idea that it's good people that make good choices and it's the bad people that make unethical ones. And so that's really what the book came to be with this conversation, very accessible. There's humor, there's anecdotes, uh, and this idea of the noble edge um, so that we could really have a different conversation about a better way to make ethical choices. I want to really hit you up. I know these are really short interviews and I apologize for that, but I really had to, I have to hit you up on a topic that apparently is near and dear to your heart and my heart. And I look after a a corporate experience, probably similar, similar to the way you described, just described what happened to you. um, I watched the second downsizing in the United States and what it did to people and how they went from what they were going to do to do to what they actually did. I watched to me what was some of the most egregious acts to people in corporations. Now, of course, this is second nature, but Exxon was the first. The phones, the phone company back at AT&T, let's call it, was basically the second major downsize. I watched that. <clears throat> couldn't, couldn't do it anymore. Went on to study the consequences of broken promises, psychological contracts. Here's my question. 
out of all of that studies, the one thing that comes up, there are two key points, trust, trust, and trust. You talk about trust. Let's get to trust. Because if we're not talking about trust in the context of ethics and integrity, we are going nowhere. Uh, Again, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, The idea of trust and trustworthiness is at the heart of everything we do. You know, an ethics decision is one that has an impact on others, either one other or lots of others, an impact on others now or in the future. And what we need to do is think about how trust or lack of trust affects the way that we make choices that have those that have those impacts. Um, so what I tried to do was really get people in this uh, book, and I hope I'm creating a national conversation mm-hmm. um, at least uh, about this, uh, to think about what trust was. You know, when I asked folks in my seminars or presentations or keynotes uh, what the most important human virtue is, most people say it's love. And of course, that's a very important, a very good human virtue, something mm-hmm. that makes us different or apart. Uh, and uh, I would suggest to them, well, let's think about this for a moment. May I suggest to you that it's actually trustworthiness mm-hmm. that's the most important virtue? Because in fact, let's talk about love as a virtue. Love relies on trustworthiness. What loving relationship works if there isn't trust between the partners? And if you take a look at all human virtues, you can see that there's an element of trust. Trust is the foundation of all human virtues. And so as we sort of break this trust off and on, usually in very small ways, almost daily, some of us sometimes, um, we're really affecting the way that we're going to live with one another for the rest of the time that we're here on the planet. Of course, we got millions or billions of people doing the same thing, and we start creating a world where where trusting someone um, or getting an ethical decision becomes the luck of the draw. It changes from place to place, time to time, person to person, and uh, it doesn't have to be that way. We can actually, one choice at a time, which is the subtitle of my book, one choice at a time, actually start making decisions that will change the world, because it just has to start with one person, um, and all of us have the power to be able to do that. I love that we're talking about this. I, I'm so thrilled you're talking about virtues. I I am so honored that I got to be friends with Dr. Nusheen Darvish and got introduced to the Baha'i faith. And, um, you know, out of that, I learned some very powerful things. And clearly, you're touching upon so many of them. And, you know, your message in the book really gives us an invitation. But more importantly, I love that you lay out the principles in the book so that we can choose, we can make this choice. What do you think our greatest challenges are, uh, Dr. Gilbert? What are our greatest challenges, you know, right now facing us for not only to look and walk this and walk and trust, but most importantly, to trust ourselves? Yeah, I think one of the greatest challenges is somehow we've got it in our heads. And by the way, part of my research proves that it comes from the way that we're educated about this, whether it's a classroom or a boardroom. Uh, One of the things we've got into our heads somehow is that ethics are gray. They're iffy. They're fuzzy. And again, this idea, oh, they can change from time to time or place to place or depending on who you're with or what you know. My book urges us to move up the moral ladder and says, yeah, that's one position to be in, but that's actually got lots of faults in it that are going to cause lots of problems for the individuals who choose it all the time. That is, that ethics are about some of us. We need to step up the ladder to the next step and understand that ethics are about all of us. When I make a choice, it's all the stakes 
stakeholders, not stockholders, but those that have a stake in my decision. It's all of the stakeholders that I may impact that I need to be thinking about as I make the choice. And as I indicated earlier with my examples, you know, when you cut someone off on the freeway, for instance, which I've been known to do, um, you're not thinking, oh, here, watch me be unethical. Um, we're just doing it because we've got all kinds of rationale that says it's the right thing to do. I'm angry. I need to go faster. I need to get home, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. We rationalize. And as I said at the beginning, somehow we need to understand that the people that make these high profile bad choices uh, in business or sports or Hollywood or wherever it is, they're doing the same thing. They don't sit there and go watch me be unethical. No, no. Executive walks into a corporate boardroom and says, hey, board members, all those in favor of really uh, hurting the consumer and making a lot of money and getting away with it, raise your hands. It's not done that way. It's done the same way that we make choices, albeit maybe much smaller choices, um, to do things that we can rationalize as right. So Mm -hmm. what we need to really understand, point to your question, is that ethics are black and white. Don't misunderstand me. A lot of people really kind of rear back on that one. I'm not saying that there aren't situations which are almost impossible to make an ethical choice. Um, And there aren't situations that make it fuzzy or gray or foggy. Um, Those definitely exist. It's a complex world. I'm here to say that what ethics are supposed to do to us is tell us what's wrong and what's right. And within that continuum of either wrong or right, that's where we can start to see some clarity. And people are starved for that kind of solid ethical ground. They are really starving for it. And, you know, you really uh, talk to the point of where we are today. Nobody really could have predicted where we are today. And certainly when you decided to write this book, I don't think you predicted that you'd be on what I call the tail end of the first wave of COVID um, or this COVID epidemic. I mean, certainly there is so much that we've seen here that could point to ethics on a a million different sides of the coin. Um, I want to ask you, I know we've got a few minutes left. Um, I want to talk about your ethical future. I want to talk about later in the book when you talk about to infinity and beyond. Um, And you really invite us to this. You invite us to, uh, and this is now me talking, you invite us to a whole new dimension. Some people call it a fifth dimension. But here's what I love. I love the quote that you put in, in this section of the book. How wonderful it is that nobody need wait a single moment before starting to improve the world. Guess who? Anne Frank, right? And we could learn so much from Anne Frank. But this is about your ethical future. Tell me about your vision. Tell me about our ethical future. Well, I think the most important thing to uh, point out in this regard is that it's up to each of us, and each of us has the power to actually create this better world that I think we'd all like to be in. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the book is grounded in theory, but it's really immensely practical, and it's got three steps and nine principles, basically, that are about how we can do this. And it isn't that we need to take them all on at once and do everything all at <laughs> once. Yeah, just, just try this one, one step at a time. And even if you're not able to uh, think about it or you wind up making the wrong choice, the book also provides this framework, this stair step, this three stair steps that allows us to evaluate the choices that we made. For instance, well, what stopped us from making uh, the right choice in this regard? Are there things that were in me, things that are in the system around us or in my family or in my business? And if so, maybe I'm responsible for making little odds and ends and changes in that regard. 
so I think the book is really meant to be a very uh, optimistic sense of the future. Everything that's happening around us, even though we can tailspin into it and see it as really awful, it's actually just a very small part of a much larger game that I think, quite frankly, is getting us to focus on the right thing. <laughs> because I think we understand what it means to be distracted by what seem large things, but in fact turn out to be little things. Yeah. Um, and so we recognize that the, the, the total time that we're here, we've got all these smaller things that may happen for four years or seven years or eight years, whatever it is. It seems like it's an infinity at the time, but it's not. And it's obviously a wonderful reminder in some ways of the things that are important and the things that are unimportant, the people who are important, the leaders that are and the people that are pawns in a, in a very large in a very large game um, to try and demonstrate something. Mm. I don't know if you want me to keep going on, but I've got an example from past administrations. Please. Might ex exemplify this. Well, you can think about it. You know, when George Bush, Bush the, the uh, junior, ran for office uh, the first time, he was standing on a ground of isolationism. Right. Let's, yeah. let's get America back to where it needs to be. Let's close the doors. And do yeah. We've seen this sort of continue. Yep. But you think about it six months later, he and his administration were involved in what perhaps is the most significant international incident that's ever occurred on 9-11. Right. And he spent the rest of he spent the rest of his presidency and the next four years when he was reelected, actually trying to figure out what the relationship between the, America and the world was. And for us, a 9-11, what were once three-minute sound bites on CNN about mm. the Middle East, we were visited, albeit tragically, but mm. we were visited by something, and we started paying more attention to what was going on over there because it had visited us in our own backyard. So, as I'm saying, these things, I think, mm -hmm. uh, while they seem terrible and tragic at the time, they actually get us to pay attention yeah. if we think about them correctly to the things that we need to pay attention to. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that, because I know from my own perspective, you know, that was really a tipping point for me. And, you know, and I'm talking about personally, for me, the show, the direction, what we're doing, our expansion. And I find myself in the throes of this now, Dr. Gilbert. I find myself in the throes of working. I work with women mostly, but I find myself in the throes of watching a bill that would give women equal pay fail in our Senate. And I'm scratching my head. I just, I'm like... This is not about a Republican or a Democrat. I just scratch my head and I try to understand what ethical property would deny women equal pay. See, your book is saying you got to get a new level of awareness. Now, there's some people that say, yeah, I don't want women to get equal pay. And I really believe that that was the right vote. But a common sense approach says, where does that fall on the ethical scale of things? So your book is allowing us to continue to ask those questions, but it's mind-boggling for so many. It is, and I think the book tries to... Again, you're absolutely right. There's nothing ethical about the passage of something that, that creates disparity between the genders or the races or cultures, mm -hmm. whatever it is. We're all leaves on the same tree. So the idea that we can cut one branch off <laughs> across from us that we don't like is, is absolutely absurd. And the way that uh, my faith looks at it, you mentioned the Baha'i faith. This is like in the case of the gender bill that uh, we're not going to get the same pay between races. You know, we look at this as, as the left and right wing of a bird. 
So the left wing is not the right wing, the right not the left. But unless both of those wings are pulling equally, the bird never flies. So this idea that somehow or other we can we can make a left wing a right wing so we got two rights or we can cut one wing off or, or make sure it's stunted versus the other side is absolutely silly and in the end it will fail. I'm not sure it'll yep. fail in the, in the amount of time we want it to, yep. but it will fail because it doesn't allow us to get as yep. far uh, as fast as we could. And I think you and I really, and and let's kind of end with this. I think you and I are on a pathway that probably we didn't think we'd be on. You know, we didn't think we'd be sort of the messengers. I certainly didn't think that I would be the messenger of anything, you know, especially in my younger years. And what I find is that asking questions and providing knowledge, I mean, you know, even for me, who is a bit older than you, but even for me, you know, when I ask women, do you know that in the United United States of America, do you know you don't he- have equal rights at the federal level? And they and, and I get looks like you're wrong. And and then we get on a pathway to learn and knowledge. And then you can choose, as you say, you can reclaim the ethical world one choice at a time. But it has to start with this beginning of the the pack, as as I think you talk about, we've got to have the noble edge within ourselves. We have to start to look forward. What's your personal message? How do people get the book? And thank you for taking time to talk with me today. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the uh, messages in the book is that uh, uh, trustworthiness or or ethics are not a, a push or a demonstration of our rights. They're a demonstration of our virtues. And so we have to really begin to think about the choices we make from a virtues-driven perspective rather than an, an economic one or a gain one or whatever, or an iffy, fuzzy, philosophical one. There are really concrete things that we can do. So I greatly appreciate uh, your delving into the book like you have and asking the questions that you have. I hope that uh, gets some of your listeners to think about, hey, mm-hmm. maybe this is something that's worthwhile taking a look at. It's available in all bookstores and online, I should say the ebook is right now. The uh, paperback will be out on August 10th, but you can pre-order and guarantee a price and free shipping right now if you go onto Amazon or Barnes and Nobles or Indigo or books.com. So it's all available there. There's some great reviews right now on Amazon, about 15 of them, because the ebook was just released about three or four weeks ago. Um, and that'll kind of uh, get you over the hurdle as if you're like, ah, is this accessible or not? It's about <laughs> ethics. Um, but they're really good. And you can also connect with uh, me uh, if you want to, at the uh, website, uh, www. all one word here, nobleedgeconsulting.com. So that's www, noble, N-O-B-L-E, edge, E-D-G-E, consulting.com. So it'll look like nobleedge, <laughs> two E's together, but it's, but it's actually nobleedgeconsulting.com. So would welcome anybody that's got some comments or, or wants to say anything to get a hold of me that way. And, and you can basically get my direct email. I love it. Thank you so much, Dr. Gilbert. Thank you for today. Hey, everybody, let's take a short break. We'll be right back. Get Empowered Transformation Talk Radio. I have had such a good time on Tales from the Merworld Radio. It has been an opportunity for me to expand myself so dramatically and become much braver in my voice to speak about the things that I'm passionate about that are a little bit out there. Your staff is amazing. Olivia is amazing. Jessica, everybody. 
anytime I need anything, they show up right away. So thank you for having such an amazing team that is allowing me this platform to do what Spirit wants me to do. You know, marriage is not always easy, but skills that improve communication go a long way. Tune in to the Relationship Rehab Show, Recovering Happiness in Your Love with Nancy Landrum and Dr. Pat each month on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Nancy is an author and teacher empowering couples to create and sustain loving marriages. Learn to listen, speak, and handle conflict with respect so your love can flourish. To learn more about Nancy and her work, visit NancyLandrum.com. Hey everybody, this is psychic medium Jamie and boy do I have a gift for you to help you get through March Madness. You've all said you're tired of jumping through hoops. So for the month of March, my gift to all of you is my full hour sessions are now half off. Psychic readings, oracle card readings, connect with your loved ones and gain spiritual guidance from your spirit team. So get ready to step in and move from March Madness to March Manifestation together. Book at ShadesOfSpirit.com or call me at 858-684-7575. Hi, my name is Diane McClay. I'm comfortable being in front of people. How to make things work in a structured format made me feel a little nervous. Everybody I have worked with on the Transformation Talk team met me with enthusiasm. Their confidence in me spilled over to me and allowed me to just grab onto it and say, oh yeah, that's me and I can own it. Thank you for showing up for me. Thank you for allowing me to put my gifts into the world and thank you for making me look good while I do it. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a super good news segment. Steve Ruschoff is joining me here today. Principal Edward Jones. I love, I love these financial uh, interviews. These short, we call them financial features. We call them good news segments, tips and techniques to save for college. This is right now, I think, one of the most encouraging conversations we have because many people are discouraged. They don't know how. But Steve is joining me here today because this is his passion. This is his purpose. You know, he leads managed investments and insurance areas of packaged products. So what does that mean? That means five, two, nine, education savings plan. Steve, it is great to have you here today, sir. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. So I'm one of these people who didn't grow up in a family that had, you know, a lot of information about college, right? I'm the only one really to graduate high school in my my family. And so this has been a journey. And now I'm excited to talk to you. Can you talk about, and this has been in the headlines. I think this has been the headlines. Students are saying, you've got to help me with student debt. Can you give us the update on some of the research you've done and where the pain point is for people? Yeah, one of the greatest gifts you can give a child is an education. And and we all know those of us that have kids, I've got a 13-year-old myself, or if you've got grandkids, you know that education costs continue to rise, the level of student debt continues to rise in the U.S. And so saving for these education costs is something that's really important. Uh, you got to start early and you got to be educated on the tools that you can use to save. Uh, One of those vehicles is something called a 529 plan. It offers benefits to savers. And and through our research, Dr. Pat, we know that two-thirds of Americans cannot identify a 529 plan as an important education savings tool or as a a tool at all for saving for education. Uh, And this is really disappointing because they're missing out on some of the important benefits that a 529 plan can offer. 
Um, you know, one of the things that I, I was so excited to talk with you about is, you, you know, here we are and people are looking for ways to grow their, their personal growth, to really prepare for the future. And education is a cornerstone of that. And, you know, I'm talking about education of every kind. You know, I want to ask you, Steve, from your perspective, you know, you've been in this arena for a while. Can you tell me how the landscape here has changed and what you are most optimistic about? You know, the, the survey results that we did uh, identify that, you know, two thirds of Americans can't identify this. And, and that is surprising mm -hmm. for a couple of reasons. One is because we also educate them, you know, what are your top savings goals? And education comes up as a top three goal that Americans mention. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, the cost of education and student debt continues to rise. And so those things are surprising. Um, but what's not necessarily surprising is the level of financial literacy or the lack thereof is mm -hmm. becoming a crisis in the U.S. And I think that's contributing to the fact that we really haven't seen awareness of this expand. Yeah, let's talk about this. I, I think you're right on point with this. And, you know, the other thing, if I might jump in, uh, if you don't mind, one of the greatest issues we have right now or greatest challenges right now, Steve, for people are the psychological impact around money. And, you know, I love that we're talking about giving people a tool and helping people understand what they should do, because sometimes we avoid the most painful part of our lives. But I learned the hard way myself about about saving for saving for an education and that's why I'm passionate about it I don't want people to step in the potholes that I stepped in give us a rundown about what I call it 529 because I think it's easy to remember that 529 529 give us a rundown about what you're looking at with the savings plan what Edward Jones is doing to help people and let's run down hey this is why you want to find out more about this. This is the, this is the advantages. This is going to get you to where you want to go. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah, 529 plans offer savers important benefits if you're thinking about saving for education costs. So the plans work almost like any other savings plan you might be familiar with, like a 401k plan. You're making contributions to it. You make investment choices. Those investments grow over time, and you've got investment earnings. The, the benefits of 529 plans are numerous. So first of all, the investment earnings on a 529 plan are federally tax-free, provided they're used for you know, education costs. Uh, they may be contributions to 529, may be deductible in, in your state, depending upon your state rules and the type of plan you're using. Uh, they offer flexibility on the beneficiary of the plan, so you can name a beneficiary like, you, like a child or one of your children. You can change that beneficiary later to a different child. You can change it even to a grandchild or yourself, frankly. Um, so there's a lot of flexibility with these plans. Uh, and I would say most importantly is the use of these plans. That's really what they're for is paying for education costs. So things like uh, the traditional use is college tuition, uh, room and board, textbooks. But the, the use has expanded there as well. So legislation over the last couple of years has expanded the use of 529 to K through 12 education, mm. repaying student debt, uh, apprenticeships from local community colleges and trade schools so that the, the uses of these have really expanded. I think that is, you know, for me, I talk about a good news segment that we're doing here right now, Steve, and I got to tell you for me that that is one of the, you know, knock it out of the ballpark kind of things, because a lot of times people don't come back to the well because they think they're looking at the same old, same old. 
And I guess that's why you're out here doing these interviews, right? That's right. I mean, the lack of awareness of 529 plans mm-hmm. is, is quite frankly disappointing because folks are missing out on some of these potential benefits that, that we mentioned. Mm-hmm. All right. So before we just get cranking here and I forget, I want people to know how they can find out more. Where is the go-to place for people to say, okay, I'm going to take a look at this. I've got a bunch of kids that I need to look at. And now Steve and Pat are talking about possibilities. Where do they go? Well, like any financial decision, it's Mm -hmm. important to be educated. Um, You know, you can go to edwardjones.com slash financial fitness. We've got a lot of incredible uh, educational information out there. Uh, Another great way is working with a financial professional like a financial Mm -hmm. advisor. We've got 19,000 talented financial advisors at Edward Jones across North America. And that's really one of the best ways because there's a lot to consider when deciding if a 529 plan or any financial decision, Mm -hmm. savings decision is right for you. You know, are you saving for a public school, a private school? How many years are you saving? What's your risk tolerance? How many kids are you saving for? Um, You can even set them up for grandchildren. So there's just a lot of considerations, and that's where a financial professional can help. You know, Steve, I I love that we're talking about this. Look, we've touched on a bunch of things, and I know this is a short interview. You know, what did I leave out? What what is it I didn't ask you about that you were just dying to tell us? (laughs) I think it's just the general uh, state of financial literacy in the country. We think this is a growing crisis. Uh, the you know, 529 plans is one proof point of that. Uh, but we've done other research. 20% of Gen Z lacks an understanding of basic financial concepts. 80% of educators lack say they lack the tools to do basic financial education. So uh, this is something that's really important to Edward Jones. That's why we've created the financial fitness program. We've partnered with EverFi, where we're working in local markets with high schools, working with students directly, working with educators in the classroom, online. We even have our financial advisors helping, serving as coaches and mentors for the educators. So financial literacy, financial education is something we're passionate about. And uh, we're optimistic through this work and the work of others like yourself uh, that we'll, we'll continue to improve it. Yeah, I'm telling you, I'm super optimistic about this because really this is putting the future in the hands of people that are so hungry, starving to have a future and have a future with great education. Steve, last, last thing, personal message. What do you want to leave us with today? Uh, get, get educated. Go to edwardjones.com slash financial fitness. That's a great way. Talk to your local financial advisor. Talk to a financial professional, but get educated and, and don't wait to start because you're really counting on the power of compound interest to help you save. And so it's never too early to start. You should start today. I'm right there with them. Hey, everybody, let's take a short break. And uh, Steve, thank you for all that you're doing. Thank you for coming out here and reminding us of the world of possibilities. Thank you and the team at Edward Jones, please. Thank you. All right, everybody, we're going to take a short break. A lot really to unpack here in this segment, but just go to Edward Jones. I mean, just take a look, get some help, make a phone call. Even if you don't know what you don't know, please do it so that you don't go through what I went through to find out how to navigate through the labyrinth of financial aid for education. Hey, everybody, we'll be right back. You're listening to Transformation Talk Radio. Are you ready to shift your current beliefs about death? From debilitating pain and loss? Follow Angie Corbett Kuiper as she shares that through choice 
present moment awareness and keeping an open mind. Anything is possible, even in death. Tune in to Beyond Proof Radio with Angie, redefining death and loss every first Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. For more, visit BeyondProof.com. The truth is funny. Shift happens with monthly guest host Karen Benton. Tune in for powerful conversations about health and wellness. Karen brings unique insights rich with humor and science to her discussions with experts in medicine, movement, psychology, spirituality, and so much more. Don't miss Karen on The Truth is Funny every third Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. For more information about Karen, visit KarenBetton.com. Have you ever felt like if you just had the right tools and resources, you'd be able to carve a path toward the life your heart is aching for? Guess what? You have everything you need inside you. I'm Natasha Ornedo, and I'm here to show you that your healing is in your hands. Tune into my show, Unlock the Healing Path, every second and fourth Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. To learn more about me and my work, visit NatashaOrnedo.com. We'd love to hear from you on Transformation Talk Radio and live on Facebook. Call into the show, 1-800-930-2819. Hey, everybody, welcome. You've heard us talk about the many different effects of this pandemic. Some are good. Some have caused people to step back, look at their lives and do some amazing things. Others have not been good. It's been painful. What are we doing with our pain? What's happening? What's the result of it? I've talked a lot about this, but today, Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford's joining me here today because she is helping us understand what exactly is happening with people, what they put in, our, in their bodies, and what is the result? Has obesity even gotten to be a bigger, a bigger problem during this pandemic? And then what do we do? Doctor, it's great to have you here. Um, I've talked about this a lot on the show. I've covered addiction. I've covered the alcohol rate at online buying at almost 600% increase. But this is the thing we are not talking enough about. Thank you for joining me here today. Thanks so much for having me. Um, This is an uncomfortable conversation for us in America. Absolutely. Um, Let's start with that. Because if it's that uncomfortable for us to talk about it, how likely are we to get the help we need about it? So I think you bring up an extremely important point. I think, Patty, the reason why we see this uncomfortable nature surrounding discussing obesity is people don't recognize that it is an actual disease. They see it as something that people choose to have as opposed to a disease of the brain. And when we continue to perpetuate this fallacy, we'll continue to feel very uncomfortable because we see it as a personal responsibility instead of recognizing that this is unfortunately a part of how certain person's bodies choose to defend, basically, going to storage mode. And so part of what is so important is to recognize obesity is a disease. It's a disease. And when we recognize it as that, then we can have this conversation about how do we address this disease that has affected more persons uh, in human population, not just us here in the US, right. in the human population 
than any disease in our history as humans. But so, yeah, doctor, I got to tell you, Dr. Fatima, listen to this. This is really it's, such it's, an important Fatima. Fatima. Uh, Fatima. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know where I got that pronunciation from. Uh, Fatima, thank you. Because when I think about you and I think about your studies, right? And for those mm -hmm. of you just tuning in, uh, Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford joining me here today, you know, obesity, medicine physician, scientist at Massachusetts General Hospital, Harvard Medical School. This is an important conversation for a number of, of reasons. I've talked about the fact that in the early 90s, my sister died on a hospital floor at about 400 mm -hmm. plus pounds. No one wanted to talk about this the way you're talking about it. No one really understood it. It's why don't you just suck it up and lose weight? Isn't that at the core of our misunderstanding? Absolutely. I think the core is we put the blame on the patient and they need to just do better and get themselves together. Um, you know, Patty, this really, um, you know, thanks so much, first of all, for sharing this story about your sister. I know that must have been very painful. She was very young. Um, I like to believe I'm in, in my 40s and very young. So I want to say very young. Notice That's that. That's right. Young. You're very, right. Very young. Um, but, um, you know, I, this is really important because these personal stories mean something. But let's let's talk about um, a patient of mine that I think reflects something similar to what you what you're experiencing. When I first moved to the Boston area, I lived on what's called the North Shore, and I had to take this train in um, into downtown Boston, and I would take the 713 train. I remember it very clearly every morning, and every morning I would see this train conductor, this gentleman who had severe obesity, walking up and down, sweating, walking up and down, moving every single morning, and secretly, as an obesity medicine physician, he was my secret like patient that I wanted, but I thought, it would be a bit presumptuous to go and hand my business card. So I didn't. And I want you to fast forward three years after that. And I walk into my office here in Boston and I see the guy. I'm like, oh my goodness. I wanna give you set the scene for you. 45 year old gentleman, 550 pounds in the room with his mother. His mother was coming to the visit, not because he has any mental deficits or anything that required to have a caregiver, she came there to be his support system and to defend him. But when I walked into the room, I alerted and said, oh my goodness, you're the conductor. I saw you every morning for the first year I lived here and you were moving and this that, and the other. His mom starts to cry. Yeah. She had been going with him to his appointment for 45 years. Wow. And every doctor she had tried to explain, oh, well, my my son is moving and my son is doing this and my son's doing that. She didn't have to sell that story to me because I witnessed it with my own two eyes. And here was given the opportunity to be able to make an impact on his weight. This is also why it's important to not really get into fiction on one number. We got him from 550 to 300. That's where he is. Now, if you had your weight bias and stigma and you're walking down the street, you might look at him and be like, oh, he needs to do something about his weight, not recognizing that he has done something about his weight and that's where his body has come to. His ability to interact, his, his health parameters, because I check them often, are stellar. But it shows that our bias leads the healthcare community, in addition to the, you know, the general population, to set up these very negative connotations and stories. And that's exactly why we came to do this work with Why Weight Communicate. We want you, whomever's listening, your family, your friends, to have a healthy conversation 
about your weight and in a way that helps support health. And so that we don't have to have stories like your sister, unfortunately, having a premature death from her obesity. And, you know, this is really the conversation that is so needed in the world, doctor, because, you know, part of this is people have struggled with the external forces, the societal forces, um, the cultural forces, you know, we have automatically without doing it, I'm just going to say, yeah, and I'm very familiar with that train ride, by the way, in Boston. Oh. I'm, from the, I'm from the East Coast. You're talking okay. about that train ride. I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I you know it. You that know ride. It. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But here we are, and we have got to have a new paradigm for this we because right? Can you think of any paradigm right now in this conversation that's actually working? Help me out. You're right. You're right. And that's exactly why I've dedicated my whole life to this work, Patty. I, people are like obesity medicine physician. I usually say that people are like, do you deliver babies? Oh, they hear OB. And I'm like, no, I'm, I care for patients that have overweight and obesity, which is almost half of the U S adult population. I have no shortage of patients ever. Um, but my goal is to get them to their happiest, healthiest weight for them. But how do they have that conversation with not just me, someone that only does this work. I want it to be such that you can go to your healthcare provider, wherever you are and feel comfortable beginning the conversation. So if you're confused about how to do that, go to why weight communicate and why weight is W E I G H T and get free resources on how to begin that conversation with your doctor, with your other healthcare provider about how to address your excess weight. I wanted to say that again, for those of you that are listening, we're having this conversation because it's information for you all have. Information is power. And if you get this information on why weight, W-E-I-G-H-T, communicate.com, that's where we want to send you. But the survey, if I know this is short interview, but I got to get the survey. I'm a researcher. You know, I didn't go to school for a bunch of years, you know, studying stuff. I, I love research. I love it. I love the answers. They don't always tell the whole story. Right. But they mm-hmm. get us in a place. Now, look, you were part of this, the survey that was conducted, the Harris Poll specifically. There had to be some results where you said, even you, the expert, right, must have said, what? Actually, no, Patty, believe it or not, because I do this all day and I am a researcher. (laughs) I wasn't surprised. Um, What we've seen here, you know, in Boston is that our weight um, to be seen um, at our weight center has increased quadrupled in size. So I knew that more people were being asking to be seen during the pandemic because you know who's been seeing them? I have been um, throughout the entire pandemic, mostly via telemedicine during the pandemic. Wow. Um, and then I also know that when I start up any conversation with a new patient, that one of the key issues that I address with them is what happens with what their other healthcare providers that have said that have really led them into a really dark place with addressing this topic with me. And so if I'm hearing that constantly to hear that more than half would, you know, feel uncomfortable speaking about their healthcare provider about weight. Not surprising. I thought it would have even been even higher because what we see is that we do a horrible job as doctors and other healthcare providers of providing an, a nurturing and supportive environment to begin to address, yeah. address the disease. I am so glad we're speaking about it like that. I, I, I am so glad we're having a conversation. You know, I, I, my journey, I come from a family of addiction, alcoholism, and I can go back. I mean, my lineage can go back. Both my 
you know, Latina lineage as well as, you know, my Mediterranean lineage. And I can go as far mm-hmm. back as I can remember in the, in the room of denial. And if mm. you're in the room of denial, you're in the room of secrets. If you're in the room of secrets, you're in the room of stuffing everything about what your situation is. And I love what you've brought to the forefront. My sister couldn't talk about this. She was, may I say, a stigma in the family. And that was more painful than others. Tell us about your passion purpose to help people enter a safe space and talk about something that's so personal, in some cases so painful, and in addition, feeling helpless. But now this is more about hope. So here we can eliminate helplessness and hopelessness, right? Do you think so? I don't know. Tell me. Exactly. No, I really do. I think, and you know, many of, since obesity is a chronic disease, even when, you know, you achieve a healthier weight, I still see my patients. And Mm -hmm. let me tell you what was delightful yesterday, because I saw patients for 12 hours yesterday. Wow. Um, It was one of my first times seeing many of my patients in person since the pandemic. And to see many of them who have, you know, if you were to see them, they're very lean and, you know, we've treated their obesity to see how they're able to come out of their shell and be themselves, to see the promotions they're getting at work, to see all of these things that have been there waiting for them, not because of their value or worth as in their work, but because of how they were judged because of their outward expression of their weight. Um, and to see the progress they're making. Now that's one group of people that I saw yesterday. Then I saw those patients that were brand new to this, finally deciding that, look, I need help. I've done all that I can do. I need to go to someone that has more you know, expertise or an experience to help me address this chronic disease. And I personalize it to the individual sitting in front of me at that very moment, because it doesn't matter about the patient before them or the patient after them, their individual experience is what matters. And I always tell them, Patty, yeah. you are the most important person in this room. Yes, I'm the doctor. See, think of me as the coach. What you do outside of this room is much more important than just what we do together. I'm helping to influence that, but you are the star player. And hearing that change of dynamic really shifts the conversation to empowerment, which I think is extremely important. You know, I want to, I know this is a, we have a few minutes left and I just <laughs> wanted to talk about, you know, a number of things on, on the website when people go there, you know, yes. there is a solution that has to do um, about communication. There's also a solution here that has to do about looking at body mass index, weight related mm-hmm. medical conditions. And mm-hmm. you, you really do a beautiful job at walking us through this and asking us these questions and giving us an opportunity to, add, to, to put some information say, and say the results show you may be a candidate for a contrave. Is that yeah. correct? Did I say that correct? You said it correctly. Uh-huh. Yeah. So what we want you to know is that you, you know, across all spectrums, lifestyle management, we're not saying not to do that. That's the core, that's the base of the pyramid if you're looking at our treatment paradigm. But for yeah. some people, lifestyle is not enough. And so then we might need to graduate therapy, entertaining medications like Contrave, which is a medication that works on how the body sees weight might be an option. And for even others, surgery may be an appropriate strategy. The goal is, is personalizing it, but recognizing that as our weight increases, that we have additional tools that we might need to consider, including the use of contrary. 
And the reason I'm bringing it up, doctor, is because, you know, when people look at the site, there's a lot of research here. I love that you put information mm -hmm. on here. Talked about the 56-week study, talked about over 2,000 patients in the study. That's a really right. good subject. Good number, True. right? That's yeah. good. Um, and yet people will be listening to this and say, how do I now, where do I go? Do, you know, do I call you? How do I get to enroll? Do I go to my doctor, try to have that conversation? Because I will tell you this, you are so far ahead of the curve on this. Not every doctor's office is. I know. I know. Well, first, so let's, let's start at the beginning and then I'll, I'll work your way up. So yeah. you want to start, go to why wait, W E I G H T communicate.com. That's going to be some conversation starters videos that I've, I've put together yeah. for you guys to look at. When you get beyond that, let's say you go to a healthcare provider and you have a meaningful conversation, great, then you begin to look at that. Let's say you have a conversation that leaves you wanting maybe another healthcare provider. That would be a time to seek another healthcare provider. If you need someone that's advanced in training, there are several of us, over 4,000 of us that are now board certified in obesity medicine. So you could go and look for a healthcare provider You know, at the American Board of Obesity Medicine, it's free. You can look up for your city and state and see who's in the area. Um, the goal is to start with where you are. Start with where you are. If you're finding that's not productive, then you may need to, to change your strategy and find those of us that are truly here to help you address your weight in a non-judgmental, safe, and you know, nurturing environment. Um, and thank you. And this is part of an important conversation for you to step out and actually talk about this um, and give people a way to really connect and find out more about this. Because we don't know really a lot of times, doctor, how to have a conversation with our doctors. Yeah. Even, even if the conversation is about something that is not as, like I like to call it, loaded, um, and we need to find a place where we can say, look, if you're not familiar with this, go to this website, take Absolutely. a look at why Here's what's going on. Can you help me with this? I want to ask you this last question. Thank you for Absolutely. today. What's your personal message? What do you want to really leave us with today? So I want to leave you with, you know, the, the key message is number one, obesity is a disease. Number two, it is not your fault. Number three, we have strategies and resources to help you begin to have an important conversation. Why wait? W-E-I-G-H-T, communicate.com. And number four, you can do this. That's how I'm going to leave you. Um, I can't thank you enough. Uh, you know how personal this is to, my, to me yeah. and my family. I can feel, um, I can, I, I feel, I'm trying to, to not have any tears <laughs> coming down because I got to look good for the camera, but no, seriously, um, um, I, I completely understand. And I tell my patients, I become often more emotional than yeah. they do when they achieve um, success. And then I'm like, yeah. wait a minute, you're supposed to be happy. They're like, I am happy. I'm like, well, why am I expressing the emotion? So I understand what it feels. And, and some of my early experience, if you go back to when I was a resident and things of that sort, were with many patients that, that were like your sister yeah. that died way too early. Yeah. Um, the first two patients I lost were 11 and 26 from severe wow. obesity. So mm. I take this seriously. Um, mm. I take this seriously because literally your life depends on it. Yeah. Oh my God. Thank you so much, Dr. Yeah. Stanford. For those of you out there, why wait? W-E-I-G-H-T, communicate.com. Everything we've talked about and more is there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Have a fabulous day. Okay. You too. Everybody, we're going to take a short break. This is very important. We'll be right back.